On Alakiski Chronicle, we feature interesting stories and people who shape our local history. The mission of the Allegheny Kiski Valley Historical Society and Heritage Museum is to interpret, preserve, and celebrate the cultural, industrial, and ethnic heritage of the Allegheny and Kiskimanitis River Valleys in southwestern Pennsylvania. Today we have a wonderful presentation by Dick Williams, who is your local Dick. You're from Oakmont, right? Yes, I'm from Oakmont. Well, welcome. It's not a very long trip for you up here. Have you been here before? Yes, many times. Okay, so you know the place, you know the museum. Sometimes when we have guests on the podcast here, they've never been here before, and they're always amazed at this wonderful museum that, that is here. But your presentation is about the local canal system here, the Western Division from Pittsburgh to Johnstown. That's what you'll talk about today, right? Yes, that's correct. How did you get interested in canals? Because that's, that's old history, isn't it? Yes, um, about 190 years right now. Um, my interest in canals came from my teaching career. I always felt if I could bring uh, the local history of the community to my students, that would help them understand the national history. So I came upon the canal uh, as an individual, and uh, over time I visited the uh, canal days in Salzburg 30 years in a row. My poor wife also did, and I have to give her credit for following that. I always joke that uh, I'm a Piscean, so I have two fish swimming in two different directions. So my Pisces background gives me my interest in water. And the canal fascinated me because it really uh, lasted for a rather short time in history. And uh, its impact was great. But then it was finally uh, done away with the uh, new technology of the railroad and what have you. But uh, searching the canal from... Uh, Pittsburgh to Johnstown, I came up with a lot of uh, local history from Pittsburgh and all the small towns between. If people have an understanding of what their community did, and it interrelates then to what our country did. Well, that's the great challenge of all local historians and local history societies and museums such as uh, Alakiski Valley here in Tarentum, is to make history relevant to those in the community, to connect the dots, to show that local history can be connected to national history. And the canal system here was a national project at one time. And I'm really looking forward to this. Canals are a bit of history that I find fascinating. I live in Beaver County, and we had a canal system that came up the Beaver River right where I live. And I can see the old vestiges of the canal locks, uh, works, the, the stonework today. Fascinating stuff. Well, in one of the slides that people will see today is how the past is always around us, but we are seldom aware of it. And the slide uh, illustrates uh, the names of, uh, like a street here, Lock Street or Canal Street. Right, okay. right. All of these communities have a Canal Street and Lock Street. I was at, uh, my wife and I were at the Benedum yesterday, and uh, we went over to a, a restaurant. Uh, it was a craft beer restaurant. And I'm sitting there, and one of the craft beers was manufactured here in Pittsburgh at 15th and Canal Street. There you go. So the past is always with us, uh, if we're aware of it. That's right. So without further ado, we're going to turn this over to Jim Thomas, who's the president of the Historical Society here. He's going to open up the remarks for your presentation. I can't wait to hear it. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. We could come alive now. They sit on the shoreline and hold my hands in the night. 
Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to the Allegheny Kiski Valley Historical Society Heritage Museum. We're a historical organization for the Allegheny Kiski Valley, you know, all the way from Apollo down to Oakmont, and it includes Trenum, New Kensington, and all the towns around here. And we've uh, been in business here since, uh, you know, for 51 years now. This was originally an American Legion building built in 1931 by the World War I vets, and then after World War II, the interior here was done by the World War I vets again to welcome the guys back from World War II. Hope you get a chance to look around. We have displays of the things that were made Terenum famous, like the glass, made Springdale famous with Rachel Carson, Natrona with Penn Salt, and Alcoa with New Kensington. And this year's uh, Terenum's 175th anniversary. So we're uh, get some extra things out on Terenum. And we even have the, the official uh, Terenum historian here, uh, Cindy Omberg. She's going to give you a little couple-minute commercial after the program's over. She's doing some uh, extra things to celebrate the 175th. But today we uh, want to hear about the canal, Pennsylvania Canal, and uh, its effect on the towns in the Allegheny Kissy Valley. And we have the expert here, Richard Williams. And uh, here's something real important, too. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Can you hear okay? Okay, good, because we're running the sound, and we're also recording this today for the Alakiski Chronicle podcast. Did you know we had a podcast here for the museum? Oh, you didn't. Oh, hey, we have a lot of work to do to promote this thing, Jim. Yeah, we, do. we do. So we started this last year. We have about 10 episodes on the internet. You can go there and you can actually listen to some of the presentations that have been made. Some of the people that we brought from the community sat them down right here and we talked about them. 89, no, 98-year-old, 96-year-old Polish immigrant who fought in the Warsaw Uprising. We have his story. He lives... Natrona Heights, yeah. So Andrew, so Andrew uh, told us his story. It's an amazing thing. We did a, um, a conversation with a woman who grew up in a coal mining family, and she told us what it was like for her dad to come home with coal dust all over him. Fascinating stuff. This is local history. We're trying to use the podcast to uh, bring it to the world, and we can do that with our podcast on the internet. We've actually been listened to in Thailand and France and China. Who do we know in China? I don't know. But somebody's a fan of us in China. So the podcast will be up probably within a two or three weeks. You'll be able to listen to this. There'll be a notification on the Facebook page, Alakiski's Facebook page. You, do you go to Facebook, anybody? Social media? Okay. So it, And it'll also be linked on to um, the website here. So my name's Kevin Farkas. I'm with the Social Voice Project which uh, we do uh, podcasts with other historical societies, other museums. We do um, things with uh, local theater groups, and we do a lot of work with veterans as well. That's actually I started to get into this, and that's how I met Dick, uh, who's going to present about the canals today, because Dick comes to our Veterans Breakfast Club that we have with the Veterans Breakfast Club organization uh, we have all throughout Western Pennsylvania. So I don't want to steal your thunder anymore, Dick. I'm going to turn this over to you, okay, because I know you have a lot of great things to say. So thank you all for being here. I'd like to thank uh, Jim Thomas for keeping this historical society alive and well. And uh, I've been part of this in many different time periods, and uh, I'm very happy to see that the building is alive and well. And uh, Kevin, uh, thank you. Uh, I, as Kevin said, I go to the Veterans Breakfast Clubs. So if you ever see one, uh, you should go and pay your respects to the American veteran. But thank you 
first of all, for coming today. Good afternoon. And uh, what takes us back to the past are the memories. What brings us forward is our dreams. I'm happy to see about 24, 25 people here. That, that shows uh, an interest in local history. A couple questions before we begin. And there are no wrong answers. That's what I always said in my 35 years of teaching to my students. There's never a wrong answer. Tell me why you came today. Anybody. Don't be bashful. We're among friends. Yes. This young lady back here first. And we'll get you, okay? We'll get these <laughs> friends this up here. This is like here. Hollywood, isn't it? Yes, it is. Hi. Um, the reason I came today is uh, Jim was telling me about, it was going to be about the canal. And I'm going to be doing a walking tour next week about Tarentum. And I was hoping to learn a little bit more about the canal so that I could, you know, enrich the people and enlighten their minds with some new information about the canal that went through Tarentum. Good reason for coming. Thank you. And we had a couple down here. Why you came? Hi, my name's Terry. I've always been a history buff, born and raised in Erie, and, uh, I only thought the only canal around was the Erie Canal, so I'm here to find out about uh, the canal system. I was here before. I took my son here when he was still in a stroller, I believe, so I'm asking him if he's remembering all this. He goes, no, no, no. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you got to say. Thank you. First of all, Mr. Williams was my oral history teacher, and I'm going to date myself as well as him, uh, 30 years ago, 30 years. Um, and I was always a biology major, but he sparked in me a love of oral history, and which led to local history. So my son now is 14, and he's looking at future careers. And one of the things we do as a family is we bike the canal path. And so we were in Salzburg a few weeks ago, and reading the boards. And I said, you know what? I know Mr. Williams is gonna do a presentation on this, so we have to go. Um, but now my son wants to be a history teacher. Um, so anyway, another inspiring thing, but uh, I knew we had to come to hear you, so thank you. Thank you, as a family, I appreciate that. And there's one last person here, the gentleman. Uh, good afternoon, uh, my name's Van Hughes, and this is my wife, Marjorie Ekman. And uh, we're uh, both members of the Pennsylvania Canal Society and uh, been a long-term member, about 35 years, and read, studied, and looked at history and visited sites uh, in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maryland. As a matter of fact, we, uh, about uh, 1970, late, late 70s or 80s, we walked from Pittsburgh to Washington, D.C., and a great portion of that is whenever we picked up the C&O Canal down in uh, Cumberland, Maryland, and the uh, total trip was about uh, 250 miles walking, so it was a great trip and a great memory, and uh, we're enthusiastic about canal history. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I always wanted to do that, but I'm 74 now, and I'm not making 200 miles. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> Thank you all. Uh, one last question. It'll help me as a presenter. Uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, okay, 10 being you're an authority on the canal. By the way, somebody called me an expert this morning. I'm not an expert. I'm a teacher who loves local history, okay? And 1 being you know nothing. So from 1 to 5, if you'd put your hand up if you're about a 1 to a 5, okay? 
And then five to 10, anybody? Good, okay, we have a nice diversity there. Again, I have studied the canal, but you know, I am not an authority. I always like to say that. And then some people always wanna call me a historian. I am not a historian. I am a secondary social studies teacher who loved local history. Okay, so join us on the towpath of the Pennsylvania Mainline Canal, the Western Division from Pittsburgh to Johnstown with stops in many small towns. And I added a course to Renham the other day. And the slide presentation, this is my fourth time giving this, gets bigger because each town I add slides for. So I hope I can hold your interest over time. My interest in the canal came from these areas, teaching American history for 35 years, a belief that all history is local, researching the history of local communities helped me, I think, become a better teacher. Uh, my students in uh, Plumborough, and I retired in 2-1, always would say to me, Mr. Williams, why did they say George Washington slept here? Oh, by the way, he did along with 2,200 other British regulars when they were trying to retake the uh, Fort uh, Duquesne situation under Forbes. Member of the PA Canal Society for 40 years, visited canals in Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania, visited the Canal Museum in Easton, uh, visited Canal Days in Salzburg for 30 years. Now, I always took my wife with me and I have to give her credit because she wasn't quite as interested in the canal as I was. But she loved the cotton candy up there, so we did all right. Um, finally, I detected a bias to some degree in the Western Division, for the Western Division Canal in 160 newsletters called the Currents of the uh, Canal Society. And I think that occurred because the Western Division was the first to actually shut down. Finally, my birthday's March 7th. That makes me a Piscean. And you know, if you know the, the horoscope, the, the fish are swimming both ways for Pisceans. So I'm kind of that way. Everything that has happened to your country has happened to your community. That's my major theme. Because, you know, as we study history uh, in, in school, there's seldom, unfortunately, a connection made between the country's history and local history. So uh, come and join me, and let's go back 190 years in our time machine. And that's, of course, H.G. Wells and his book called The Time Machine. I'd love to have one of those. I'm sure we all would. But the past is talking to us, but are we listening? Okay, now you'll notice... All these, these signs are in the Pitts, greater Pittsburgh area, okay? The Canal Cafe, the Old Canal Inn, Canal Street, Canal Grill, and the ever-present Pennsylvania markers, okay? They're all over the state for the canal. And we're going to come back to this one because this is in Terenum. So if you are observant, you will catch the past talking to you. And I'm sure the vast majority of Pittsburghers have no idea about the canal, okay, unfortunately. My wife and I were at the Benedum last night, and we went over to a restaurant. It was a craft beer place, and at the bottom of their 31 craft beers, there's a place 
on 15th and Canal Street in Pittsburgh. Now, how many people knew that that was the Pennsylvania Mainline Canal? The progress of our trip will be, we'll equate you with maps first, the reason for the creation of the canal, who built the canal, how many people have an ethnic Irish background in here? Well, if you traced your tree back, somebody probably worked on the canal, okay? We'll show you that in a minute. Talk about the canal boats, what powered the boats. The important part of the canal was, of course, the locks, the aqueducts, and then the towpath. We're going to go from Pittsburgh to Johnstown and visit the canal towns, not all of them, of course. The canal and its connection to the Underground Railroad. And this was something that I've done a good deal of research on because most people don't connect the two, the Underground Railroad and the canal. Famous people of the canal, Pittsburghers, and finally the forces that ended the canal. Now, notice what I'm doing up here with body language, okay? See this tie? Can you see what the tie has on it? Well, there is the canal killer right there, the railroad. Okay, let's acquaint ourselves with uh, canals of Pennsylvania. And when I taught, I used geography a good bit. And you notice this, this map illustrates the canal time period from the middle of the 1800s to early 1900s, okay? So notice, all the blue lines are canals. So there were more than one canal in Pennsylvania, okay? And it's amazing. Uh, we're going to be interested in this particular canal. This was known as the Pennsylvania Mainline Canal. Notice it had four divisions. The Western Division from Pittsburgh to Johnstown, the Allegheny Portage Railroad, and that's a beautiful historical site, which took the canal boats over the mountains, the Eastern Division, and then finally, the railroad that took it into Philadelphia. Now, today I'm going to specialize in the Western Division of the Pennsylvania Mainline Canal. From Pittsburgh, New Kensington, Terenum, Freeport, then I look at Salzburg, and finally we get to Johnstown. So this is the Western Division. The general statistics, Pennsylvania Mainline Canal, the total miles, 391. The total cost back then was $10 million. If you take it inflation, that would be $300 million today. The total number of locks which raised and lowered the canal boats according to the geography of the area was 168. That was the key to the canal. The canal dimensions, 40 foot at the top, 28 foot at the bottom, and 4 to 5 feet deep. Built from uh, 1826 to 34, the canal builders were paid 30 cents a day. Now that sounds terrible, but you know, we're back in the 1820s, but that still was terrible, okay? Canal travel time ultimately from Philly to Pittsburgh was three and a half days. That's amazing. And uh, the Western Division, which I'm going to work on today, is 104 miles, and it was a uh, total number of locks was 68. Now you'll notice 68 was a great amount of the 168 because of our hilly terrain in the mountains in this area. 
The major reason for creating the canal, somebody mentioned here that the Erie Canal was important, and it certainly was. And you know the song, 16 in a mouse on the Erie Canal. But it was 363 miles, and it was done in 1825. From Albany here on Hudson to Erie. And the Pennsylvania Canal was uh, completed around 1834. Now what happened was, the Erie Canal was stealing all the business of moving goods and people and services across. So the commercial people of Pennsylvania said to the uh, state legislature, we have to build a canal, okay? And we want to do it quickly because they've been in business for nine years. The other challenge was uh, to move people in Pennsylvania from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh and interchange goods, raw materials across the state. Getting to Pittsburgh in 1700, you walked or you took a horse. Then as you move up, the roads became more uh, actively built and the stagecoach lines came in. Finally, on the rivers, the steamboats helped. And then by 1830, you had the canals. And then the killer came in in 1855. So you see a history here of literally the old, the old quote, necessity is the mother of invention. Here's how you cross Pennsylvania in a Conestoga wagon with four horses, sometimes maybe eight, depending upon the load that you were coming across. This took a great deal of time. Notice two different ways. The method, the dirt road, wagon, eight horses for a large load, the canal boat, two mules, and at times only one. The amount of time crossing Pennsylvania, 15 to 45 days, nine days. And that's, that's a great amount of time because they ultimately had passenger service down to three and a half days. The cost, $100 a ton six bucks a ton. So you can see what the canal began to do for commercial. These were always placed in uh, businesses throughout the state uh, because you got a great number of people in, uh, engaged in canal boating, okay? And they were uh, competing with, with each other for time and literally the cost of moving the goods or people. The annual, now here's who built the, the canal, okay? You notice the green line happens to be the Irish. That's why I asked if we had some Irish background here. Notice how that line increases when you go from 1820s to the 1850s. So as you'll see in a minute, a large number of the labor force came from Irish. Then the English, then the Germans, and finally, by 1860, the Germans overtake even the English and the Irish. The great uh, island of Ireland and the home for the men who built the canal. Just a couple quick slides showing you leaving Ireland. Now, the Irish would spend anywhere from four to six weeks crossing, and the steerage was the Irish home, a dark, damp, dismal place. But then... They came here and they needed work. So here is, in fact, the building of the canal. Again, I told you earlier the size of it, the depth of it, and the pay. This was back-breaking labor. 
some of the canal crews, okay? And as I said before, mainly Irish. And notice, shovel dug. And you can imagine doing that. Now, once they moved on the canal, then we had to get the particular boats. These were known as packet boats. And notice, they were separated. And that was when we got to the Portage Railroad, which we'll just brief briefly talk about. This was to move basically raw materials and finished products, and this was a passenger boat. Typical canal boat, okay? The front was where the tow line went out, the back had the rudder, and uh, notice um, the crew would sleep literally on the boat, the freight, the passenger quarters, and then, of course, the good old mules, good old Sal, was uh, here. And on the bigger boats, they had the two uh, mules, because every 15 miles... And that's part of the song, remember, 15 miles on the Erie Canal, they changed the mule or the horse. A typical uh, raw material, here's your lumber being moved, that's the towpath. Uh, you have one coming up, one going down. And notice how close it is to the towns. Here is a typical very long boat hauling coal with the two mules up front and the uh, towpath uh, people and the canal uh, captain there. Life on board the canal boat, uh, because many families literally lived on the canal boat, okay, with their children. A typical passenger canal boat, quite packed, and uh, there's your towpath, there's your horses in this case, and sometimes the passengers would get out and stretch their legs. The children grew up on the canal boat. You can't see it real clear here, but they're chained to the deck. Here's their mom doing the washing, and she didn't really want them falling into the canal. At night, these berths would come down, and the people would then sleep on the canal. Notice, it wasn't very comfortable. And you always worried about the person that was above you if they weighed two or 300 pounds, and then even the person above that. So this is how they slept. Now, here's the engine of the canal, okay? A mule. Fuel, hay, and water was on the canal boat. Sometimes Sal would be a little bullheaded, okay? Mules were used to pull the heavier canal boats, and notice, only speeds up to three to five miles an hour. People kept an eye on the canal boats, because when you went faster, you would create a larger wave and degrade the sides of the canal. So that was a no-no. So we even had speed limits back then. Sal's home away from home in this little area here. So the mule was key. Now, the towpath, and this was a horse, of course, uh, the horse carried lighter loads, and they could go a little faster. But notice, uh, the towpath was, uh, the people that actually uh, walked the towpath were women, young men, older men. So, and they stayed on the canal boat. Uh, here is a key to uh, Pennsylvania Canal. This was a lock tender's house. He rented this from the state, okay? His wife and himself, he had X amount of acres. He could grow hay, sell it to the boat captains. His wife would put up preserves and different things, and she could sell her goods. So the lock tender's house is a key to the whole canal. 
Now this is the key to understanding a lock. Notice the horses or mules pulling the, the boat in. The gate opens and that gate had to be taken care of by a lock tender. Then the water from the left comes in, raises the level, uh, and then of course that gate opened and off we go. And it was a massive movement of water, literally. The canal across the state obviously always had to be near a river or a source of water. And this just shows you how complicated sometimes uh, the actual process of building the canal with tunnels going past falls and rapids. Again, the lock tender had to move the gates. They, weren't, uh, they were manually moved. Now we leave the locks and we go to the aqueducts, okay? Now every aqueduct you see is watered, so the canal boat comes across. This was a small stream. This is a rather large river aqueduct, okay? Here's the towpath with a real young man on it, okay? And uh, the towpath gentleman would have a conch shell. This would alert people to problems either on the boat or the gentleman walking. And of course that famous phrase, low bridge, everybody down because we're coming to a town. And when you didn't, you got knocked off the boat, which was difficult. In August of 1825, the two towns of Harrisburg and Philadelphia had a great convention to lobby the state legislature. They lobbied back then too, to build the canal. Now notice the governor back then, his name was George Wolfe, okay? And he supported the canal, and he supported public education. And I always thought, that's kind of odd, because here is Mr. Wolf again. Throughout the state, you have the canal markers. Great, great way to learn history. Interesting, here we begin the canal and the movement up the canal, up the Allegheny River. Notice, in the canal time period, in the canal time period, this is Pittsburgh, okay? Over here was an independent town known as Allegheny City, presently called the North Side. But back then, they were really independent of Pittsburgh. So when the state commission got started on the canals, we had to send two teams of surveyors up either side of the Allegheny from Pittsburgh to Freeport. And they decided that the best, the best side of the river to do the canal was the north side, which Pittsburghers really didn't like, but Allegheny City loved. So then, of course, as politicians are, they began to lobby the state commission to say that the canal better end in Pittsburgh. So when the Canal Commission's surveyors and engineers came back, it did go there. But this gentleman, William Barclay Foster, remember the name, two terms as state legislator, collector of tolls eventually from Blairsville to Pittsburgh on the canal, the Pennsylvania Main Line Canal Commissioner, very powerful man and founder of Lawrenceville. So you know he wanted the canal to end in Pittsburgh. His son, William B. Foster Jr., the eldest son, was a civil engineer, helped to locate the canal route from Pittsburgh to Freeport, and the chief engineer, ultimately, of the public works of Pennsylvania. 
very powerful elder son. Now, his youngest brother, of course, was Stephen Collins Foster, okay, the American composer whose folk culture-centered music brought life to the American antebellum South, today is often referred to as the father of American music. So the whole Foster family rode the canal, controlled the canal, and helped to build it. Okay, so what I tried to do in this slide presentation is show you the people throughout Pittsburgh to Johnstown who were highly influential. And most of you would have known that name. Okay, let's get aboard the canal boat. You're off on a great adventure. We're going up the Allegheny, now it's built. I love this slide because who, who created it showed this is 21st century north side right here, okay? And he superimposed this image of the, again, canal tender's house and that and the basin over a modern uh, slide. And um, again, this was at that point Allegheny City. These uh, signs were always in competition. Now, the fare from F Pittsburgh to Philly was 12 bucks. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, that's a lot of money. Pittsburgh in the 1840s, the Monongahela, the Allegheny. And of course, <laughs> you notice the smoke. And uh, this gentleman is credited for saying that. Pittsburgh was literally hell with the lid off and uh, ultimately the smoky city. Now, you see this, this bridge right here, which is an aqueduct, and we'll talk about that now. Here is again, the canal coming down, canal coming down, the bridge, and uh, another area where water could come out across the city on the uh, aqueduct and into, and ultimately into the Monongahela. A better slide showing that with the blue. So the canal boat would come down, it would cross the aqueduct, and it would go to this side, and the basin uh, distribute some of its goods and then come. Now notice, from here to here is blank, because that's Grants Hill, and there was a tunnel under it. And it comes out here, and finally dumps into the Monongahela River. This is a very accurate slide presentation of all the locks, the lock keepers' homes, the Roebling Aqueduct, and then the ultimate end on the Monongahela. We're going to be talking about a hotel that was seated right here in a minute. And then, of course, we're now going to go to this gentleman. Before we get there, that picture that I really liked with the lock, twice I showed you that, here's the uh, remnants. When they were building the highway out to the North Hills, they ran into an archaeological discovery, and in any construction site, it shuts down, and the archaeologists come in. And that was the uh, gate that they dumped in. Now, the Pennsylvania Railroad did that because they threw it all in, covered up the canal, and put their tracks above. Okay, we're looking from Grants Hill. This is Grants Hill towards the point. That's the aqueduct. And over time, Grants Hill kept going down and down. And if you're familiar with the geography of Pittsburgh, that's where it is. In constructing a building in Pittsburgh, they found the canal tunnel. And the original tunnel for the canal under Grants Hill. And that was the building that they were digging the basement for. Which, of course, at one time, when I made this, it was the U.S. Steel Building. Now we know who owns that beautiful building. 
Some of you pay it a lot of money every year. Okay? UPMC. Big disaster. Most people aren't familiar with, aren't familiar with at all in Pittsburgh history. In 1845, massive fire from the point up destroyed most of Pittsburgh because the buildings were wood. And of course, it destroyed the wooden aqueducts. What happened because of this, you often hear the, the quote again, necessity is the mother of invention. And in this case, when that burnt, the council in Pittsburgh said, no building in Pittsburgh will be wood anymore. They all have to be brick. So guess what happened? All around Pittsburgh, there were 13 brick plants made because they had to produce millions of brick for rebuilding this part of Pittsburgh. Some of the remnants are still here from that. We had the clay from the rivers. We had the wood to burn, eventually natural gas. So uh, there's the new aqueduct built by John A. Roebling. First wire cable suspension bridge. The Roeblings, inventor of the steel wire rope, designer of the Brooklyn Bridge, and began business at Saxonburg, which he founded. And his son built the Brooklyn Bridge. And this is, of course, Mr. Roebling. Interesting gentleman. A lot of good books written about him. He also solved another problem for us. Now, I'm a little ahead of myself. Here is Johnstown right here. And then, of course, the big problem to get over the, App the Appalachian Mountains. Because the canal came in and they took it out of the canal and put it on a car and took it up over the mountain. And in the process, this is a very interesting site if you ever are interested in the canal and go east. This was a, a, a large steam engines in this building would pull the canal boat up. Now, they didn't have this device on the original. This is a braking system. And sometimes when they pulled the canal barges up, particularly the heavier ones, they had hemp rope. Well, you know what happened. The hemp rope broke, the canal barge sometimes with people, and goods went down the mountain. People were killed. So the first concept was this break. So if it started backwards, it would slow it down. And then, of course, Mr. Roebling came in with the steel rope. And his son then completed the most beautiful bridge in the United States, I think, or the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay, we're moving up the Allegheny, the two-toe pass. And occasionally, of course, you had to let them know with the horn that they were passing each other so the ropes wouldn't get entangled. If you've ever driven down Route 28, as you get into the city, PennDOT did a beautiful thing. It was amazing. How many people have seen this? Oh, great. There's five murals there. Now, you can't pay a lot of attention because you're moving about 60 miles an hour and you don't want your family to get killed. But the first time I saw it, I slowed down way too fast and my wife was in a panic. But they did a great honor to the canal. There's two horses pulling a canal boat and the other four murals are there. We're coming up the Allegheny. Here is the Sharpsburg Seal, okay? Notice the canal, the tow pass. Uh, I think it's a really a unique seal that brings up Sharpsburg. Here, I ran into a gentleman that is from Utah, and he does GPS mapping. And he is producing a book about the canal from Philly to Pittsburgh, where he takes all the GPS maps, totally accurate, and superimposes the canal, 
the lock tender houses, the locks, the whole nine yards. And uh, he gave me the, the permission to use this. This is in Sharpsburg, and the blue line represents the canal. Sometimes hugs the river, other times doesn't. And uh, you'll notice as we come up now, you'll see that more and more. Here was the towns of Etna, Sharpsburg, and Aspinwall coming right up through here again with the canal. And Aspinwall takes it real close to the river. And then we get to the towns of Verona and Oakmont. And what I want to show you here is this. Number one, none of these places had bridges. So they all had a ferry boat. Notice the cable. They pulled theirself across the river. And uh, the steam, uh, the steamboats, seldom was the Allegheny deep enough to take a steamboat, okay? Now notice Verona. Here comes the Allegheny Valley Railroad right up through. They had a beautiful roundhouse right here. Here's Plum Creek, and this is the town of Oakmont. Now in Oakmont, we also had an Oakmont Ferry, and this would have been Halton Road moving upwards, okay? And this would have been the Allegheny Valley Railroad, that it came out very early in our history. When I researched this, we also in the Oakmont Historical Society found out that we had a Civil War camp in Oakmont. Over 4,000 Civil War veterans were trained here to fight the Civil War. And of course, right across the river was in fact the canal. Before Oakmont was called Oakmont, it was called Halton Station, and there is in fact the AVR. Uh, this one, real quick, is the canal. This is the old Halton Bridge. There's your turnpike bridge. There's your railroad bridge, and there's the dam, okay? A connection between Oakmont and the city of Pittsburgh, and the connection is James Crossan. He wanted to get out of the smoky city, so he moved out to Oakmont, bought land, and he called it Edgewater. Of course, if you know anything about Oakmont, it later became a mill, and then now it's a new housing plan. But Crossan had an interesting connection to the canal. He owned the Monongahela House, and obviously it was right next to the Monongahela River. Now, he was the creator of Edgewater, possible underground supporter, 210-room hotel, 500 employees, 310 African-Americans, and many of them were runaway slaves. In 45, his first hotel burnt and crossing rebuilds, okay? And he would at night get out of the city, come out on the AVR, and have a good time. James Crossan's gatehouse was right here. Uh, notice there were three stations in Oakmont. Now the gatehouse was a sad story because it was the oldest building in Oakmont, but as they were building Edgewater, we couldn't save it quick enough, okay? Now that gatehouse let people into his estate and it ultimately became the place where most laborers who worked at Edgewater passed through. During Camp Wright, we had a, an interesting display and a, and a situation where we had to find a, a Lincoln uh, person. By the way, the Monongahela House, I forgot to add, Mr. Lincoln, when he went for his first and only inauguration, he uh, stopped and gave a speech on the balcony of the Monongahela House. The Underground Railroad connection is pretty obvious to me. Uh, following natural boundary lines the Underground Railroad did, Pittsburgh had an active Underground Railroad movement. 
uh, down near the uh, Market Square area, there were several people who took in runaway slaves. The Allegheny River obviously went north. Canal boats and the right captain, it took the right captain, would put the, the runaway slave in at night and take him north. But when the fugitive slave law passed, that made it much more difficult and illegal. Notice in the early time period, uh, Pennsylvania played a key role to the Underground Railroad system, the red lines. Again, just some pictures on the underground. The people who were the connection between the canal and the Underground Railroad. Jane Gray Swisshelm, an abolitionist, a journalist. Her paper was the Pittsburgh Saturday Visitor. Swissfell was named after her, and she traveled the, ca uh, the canal several times to Philadelphia. Martin Delaney, an interesting individual, promoter of African-American nationalism, published a black newspaper, The Mystery, attended Harvard Medical School for a time period, and was the first commissioned African-American officer in the Civil War. There he is. He worked on a team to dig the canal, briefly at Harvard Medical School, first black officer and mystery uh, editor. Frederick Douglass, I'm sure you all know his name. He was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Northern Star and rode the canal several times in our state to go to Philadelphia conventions. Good old Harriet Beecher Stowe. And Mr. Lincoln said after she published Uncle Tom's Cabin, ah, the little lady that started the Civil War. Because by the way, that book published, uh, it was several hundred thousand volumes. And she rode the canal and wrote a humorous article about it. Now, this is getting back to the canal, moving up towards Freeport. This was when they were redoing the Halton Bridge. Now, every time I would go across the Halton Bridge, I would say to my wife, do you hear the clippity-clops? And at first she thought I was nuts, okay? And she still does at times. But literally, where you see those oil cars, that was the canal. And I was referring to the mule coming up the Allegheny. And uh, the ride up the Allegheny was pleasant sometimes. You could sleep on the top, talk to your friends. She would read a newspaper. Conversations abound. And inside, it was too hot anyhow. We get to Springdale, Pennsylvania. Okay, right here is Springdale. Over here is Logan's Ferry. And in the 1800s, Alexander Logan said, hey, I'm a great entrepreneur. I'll build a ferry boat. And he did. And then he said, once I get these people across from the canal, I need a place to house them. So he built the Logan's Ferry Inn. Quite interesting person stopped there. Actually, two people did. Here's what he did. He built an interesting ferry boat. His wasn't a pull across. He had these horses moving this wheel so he could take bigger loads across the river. Took me a long time in research to find the Logan's Ferry Boat, okay? Here's the gentleman, okay, who came down the canal and he said, I need a rest. So he got on the Logan's ferry boat, went across, stayed in the inn. It was a 106-year-old woman and she said that she had the book with this gentleman's signature in it when he stayed in the inn. You know how paper articles get away from you? Well, it's that way. 
Here is when he was younger, and here's the trip he made throughout the United States. And he wrote American Notes. And in American Notes, one of his great books, he talks literally about the Pennsylvania Canal and his ride across. Other people, uh, William Henry Harrison, okay, rode the canal, and finally his body was taken to its resting place. Uh, James Garfield was a canal boy. Uh, James K. Polk worked on the canal briefly and was a canal boy. Jenny Lynn, I'm sure most of us haven't heard of her, but she was a Swedish songbird. Rode the canal, had a great story about it. And here we go. We're all the way up to your town now. Each time that I do, I have to add slides, okay, because I want to personalize it. And uh, Terenum's going through a beautiful concept. And I have to congratulate the people who are working on the uh, 175th year because they're really bringing out a lot of good things. Chartier's old time was the beginning, okay? An Indian. Couldn't find a picture of him, unfortunately. But ultimately, it was then founded by uh, this next gentleman that we're going to bring out. And uh, in 1820, Henry Brackenridge laid out the plan along the Pennsylvania Canal. Here he is, uh, Henry Marie Brackenridge. Uh, a really nice, I think, a pencil sketch map of uh, Terenum and the problems for the canal with the uh, creek there. Interesting little uh, article on the canal and suggested a lot of things in Terenum. You know, a lot of raw materials came here, a lot of finished products. So Turinum really was um, a big part of the canal. And when Charles came down, the whole town came out to talk to him. And they had a good time. One of the uh, ways, of course, that the canal boat had to go under, low bridge, everybody better be down, and the small road in uh, that sketch of Turinum. Here again is that great map that the gentleman's building coming right up through Trenum. Another one I just found were the locks, the bridges, and the mile lock going up through. And remember this picture was too small then, but history talks to us, doesn't it? If you're listening. Look at that, Lock Street. And who hasn't been to this place? Okay, great restaurant. If you haven't been there, go someday. And good food. And here's the Pennsylvania Railroad, which they ended up just dumping dirt into and covering the canal. How many people know Uncle Billy Smith? Anybody know Uncle Billy? Oh, good. Okay. Uncle Billy, what a tombstone, huh? Whew. Uncle Billy started his work as a uh, blacksmith, and he could create his own tools. Uncle Billy then was employed in Salzburg. He helped drill and build the drills for the first salt wells in Salzburg. Because remember, in the 1800s, refrigeration, you had to salt everything, okay? So Uncle Billy drilled for salt. They had the salt pans. They would, the water would pass forth, and uh, he would ship it all on the canal. Hundreds of thousands of tons of salt went through the canal. Then Uncle Billy said, I, they're doing something up north here in a place called Oil City. So he went up there, and him and Drake drilled the first oil well. And he's laid to rest right here in Trenum, Uncle Billy Smith. 
That's what it says there, but I don't know. You say no? Okay. But he was born and raised in Terenum, right? So we can locate him there at least that, and his death, he has to go someplace else. Last slide here. You got a horse, uh, the Trenum Station, moving a canal boat up. That's my homage to Trenum. Then we move up the canal, and here we go to Freeport. Freeport's an interesting time because here's the second Freeport aqueduct that our gentleman Roebling built. Trenum got, I mean, Freeport got its name by doing this. All other towns charged the commission for the packet boat to tie up. People in Freeport said, hey, we need the business. So they didn't charge, and they called their town Freeport. Interesting town. Here's just uh, another creek coming down, making a problem for a smaller bridge, um, making the bend to Kiski Minotist, and then we're leaving the Allegheny and going down the Kiski. Salzburg, interesting place. Uh, first salt well in the vicinity, 1813, the 30s become a leading salt producer, the canal, the shipping, the Western Division. Um, of all the towns in the Western Division, they made the greatest effort to bring about a knowledge of the canal. Here's the canal coming down through Salzburg. If you've never been there, it's, it, in the past, it's done the canal great service. There's the railroad and the canal, and they built a, a canal park. Here was the path of the canal. They outlined the actual area of the canal boat and the kids from the school district would come down and learn about the canal through that. This is probably one of my best slides, which somebody did a beautiful picture on the lock in Salzburg. The uh, museum there does a little bit on, on the uh, canal. And then this superimposed here on uh, the train over the canal, and then canal days. And I forced my wife to go with me for 30 years, and she was very nice to do that. And in the beginning, they did a beautiful job on the canal. The last five years, it's more cotton candy, unfortunately, and other things. And I, I sort of regret that they're not doing quite as much. Down to the last town. This last town is defined by the South Fork Dam because the South Fork Dam watered the canals. And we all know, and people are shaking their heads where we're going here, okay? Of course, the great South Fork Lake and Dam. And originally it was controlled by the state and generally kept up as a dam. I said generally. The longer it existed, the less work was done on the spillway. Finally, towards the end of its history. It was sold to the industrialists of Pittsburgh, the Fricks, the Carnegies, and they didn't do much on the spillway either. So the next slide, you know what it's gonna be. They said it rained for a week. I sort of thought maybe this year was gonna be quite like that. And finally, the dam broke and the Johnstown flood happened. And it was the greatest disaster to that time and probably the greatest disaster in American history up to 9-11. Now, finishing it off, because you've all been very nice and very attentive, and I know it's warm in here. Uh, difficult. I taught an oral history course, okay? And I'll never forget 
We had over 1,500 hours of local history. And this young lady came to me. This is a good story, so I think you'll like it. It'll take two minutes or so. But she came to me and she said, Mr. Williams, I let them pick their own topic. She said, I'd like to do the Johnstown flood. I said, great. You can read David McCullough's Johnstown flood book. They all had to read three books. I, I was a tough teacher. They did a lot of writing and reading, okay? <laughs> As she can attest to. The point is, I said to her, you're gonna do the 1970 flood, aren't you? No, Mr. Williams. Oh, okay, you're gonna do the 36 flood. She said, no. I said, what do you mean? You're gonna do the 1889 flood. You have to interview people who are alive. Ready? She said, in a very nice voice, she said, well, Mr. Williams, I already have somebody. The woman's 106 years old. I said, okay. We'll reduce the, they had to do three interviews, okay? I said, we'll let you go on one because I don't think you're gonna find another human being like that. So she went to Johnstown. She was a great student and in her interview with this 106 years old woman, 20 minutes in, because you know all young people think anybody older than 18 is senile, okay? <laughs> 20 minutes in, this 106-year-old woman said to her, you know, dearie, you already asked me that question 20 minutes ago. <laughs> One for the old folks, okay? It was a very tragic experience, and most of her memories came, obviously, from people telling her about it because she was very young when it happened. But this is back in the 70s, so that puts her in the right time period. When her father heard the 40-foot high wall of water coming down the valley, he said to his wife and two daughters, go to the attic. They got up there and the other daughter wasn't there. So the father said, I will go down and get her. Unfortunately, at that point when he got downstairs, the wall of water hit the house moved the house down at least a half a mile without totally breaking up. They never found the body of the father or the daughter. But talk about oral history and what it can do for people. Uh, you know, I'll never, there's so many stories, but I can't keep you here this long for all the good stories of the oral history students had. They were, that was one of the best. Again, just the tragedy of the flood Something like this, you can see houses did make it to some degree. Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, comes through. She worked with the people at Johnstown. Now let's look at the forces, and we're about done. They killed the canal, okay? One of the first early ones was the Panic of 1837. Yeah, and it was a Great Depression in 1843. We think we only had one with uh, 1929. That reduced the businesses, the people who could pay to ride the canal. So that began to affect the canal. Mother Nature did its job every year. In the winter, you could ice skate, but that took a toll on the sides of the canal and the locks of the canal. Also, the canal killer, which is why I wore my tie today, because that's the railroad. When the railroad came in, the canal was, was over. But it's a rebirth. 
Now we have the Pittsburgh to Harrisburg Mainline Green Canal Greenway, okay? Interesting. And you can do this. Ride your bicycle or walk, as some people have done. Finally, last slide. The Pennsylvania Mainline Canal lasted from 1834 to 1857. It helped westward expansion, obviously. It helped develop the small towns along the route. It reduced the time to cross the state. It helped Pennsylvania become an industrial state. It helped to develop inventions, technology such as the Staple Bend Tunnel, the Pittsburgh Aqueduct, the Allegheny Portage Railroad. Opened new markets for Pennsylvania goods, provided a vast labor market for new immigrants. And I say that with some heart. Let's not forget that immigrants do bring good things to our country. Finally, the red line, you know, wasn't all positive. On June 25th, the Pennsylvania Railroad bought the Pennsylvania Mainline Canal for seven and a half mil. Got a bargain. One year later, they replaced the canal with railroad tracks and fundamentally the canal was gone. Started in this end. So that's why we don't have the records or the physical artifacts that the other parts of the state may have. The canal was a major economic problem for the state of Pennsylvania. In 1857, the canal cost the state 101 and a half million in construction and interest. And its revenues only turned out 43 and three quarters million, which was a loss of approximately 57 million. So in terms of money, pure money, it wasn't a success. But in terms of those other things that are mainly not calculable in some instance, it is a great time. Thank you for being an attentive audience. And if there are any questions, keep in mind I'm not an expert, okay? But I'll try to answer them. Thank you. I was wondering why Natrona wasn't mentioned. The reason is simply this. I haven't been to Natrona yet. <laughs> no. You're welcome. You're welcome to go. <laughs> and then the slide presentation will be just that much longer. So if I ever get to Johnstown, those people will have to bring blankets and food. <laughs> okay. Even a street. North Canal Street. Sure, sure. So, and, and you could say that about every one of those small towns coming up. They all played a great part. Anybody else? Yes. Up in Freeport, they have a little park, and they have uh, just cement-like barrier-type things buried in the ground, the shape of a uh, canal boat. Okay. Were all the canal boats basically the same size? No. Depending upon, uh, particularly the ones that moved raw materials like coal, iron ore, lumber, they were bigger, okay? And they would take many times two or three mules to pull. They were much bigger. The canal packets that you saw, the three of them tied together, that was going over the mountain. They would have been smaller. And uh, the, the canal passenger boats were generally smaller too. So they weren't all the same size. It varied according to what the company was doing. And there were many companies that ran packet boats in general. And they were all in competition with each other to move goods, services, and people. What was the name of the 106-year-old woman interviewed about the Johnstown flood? I'll tell you what. I retired in 2001. Okay? You know where I'm going with this. That's uh, 16 years. I had approximately 
250 oral history students in my career of 25 years. I can't tell you the name of that person. Okay. I'm sorry, because uh, there's a lot of history with this program that uh, is sad, and I won't go into that now, but uh, the students made my t last 25 years. They didn't have to take this course. This was an elective for seniors. And if they had me for American history, that's why we didn't have quite as many students in oral history as we had in American history. Because, uh, as I said, uh, they had to read, write, and I gave them, I hope, a lot of good skills to go on to life. But uh, I would like to say to you that I could go back and find that name. But I won't go into why that's impossible. Uh, right down over the hill was a big canal basin. Mm -hmm. And there was a hotel right off of, uh, well, it's Ross, uh, Ross Street now, okay. up on the hill. Just from talking to old, old timers, the canal boats would tie up down there to use the hotel overnight. How we doing? I guess it was a big basin. Would have been. And, you know, that's what's so great coming to meetings like this because I can get other ideas. And, you know, I didn't know two of your points. You know, ultimately, I don't know if this will ever happen, but I'd like to write a book on the canal from here to there to Johnstown. But. The writing skills are not, and uh, the patience, <laughs> the patience and the age is getting there. Anybody else? Hey, thank you for being such a good audience. I, I truly appreciate it. It's a little warm. I don't know if you're as warm as me with this sport coat on. I, I'm the speaker. <laughs> but thank you for coming today. Yeah. Wait, he just found... The name of the woman, possibly. Elsie Frome, 108 years old. That's, that's what smartphones will do for you. Uh, just, just one minute, a few minutes. Uh, my name is Mark Gleason. I'm the one changing the slides. I live in Oakmont, but I came from Ford City. And just sitting here and looking at, first of all, the sandblasting up here. At one time at Ford City, there were two in-resident artists. One man, he lived in Worthington, uh, and his name was Arthur Van Dyne. Some of you probably remember his son, Wayne Van Dyne, who was on KDKA. Actually, what they did is they did the sandblasting of the mermaids for the hotels and this type of thing. So looking at these two, you're looking at something that isn't made anymore, because if you've ever gone to Ford City, the world's largest glass plant is now gone forever. Nobody would ever think that was going to happen. Also, you look at the gold mirrors that are on the side here. The first gold mirror was, was done by Ford City in, Ford, in, in the mirror shop, and my father was the head of the mirror department. Uh, Mellon Institute down in Pittsburgh actually made the first gold solution. Of course, people were always putting silver in the back of the mirrors. So somebody said, well, we've never done gold, but they had already sold the job in Chicago, so they had to come up with this. So the solution was made, and in my house, I have a piece of the first mirror that was ever done with gold, because it broke. And Mr. Van Dyne, the end, did a little sketch of a, of a goat on it, so I have a piece there. But these are actually historical things, because the last mirror that was made by PPG, and people always thought of this, it was the greatest mirrors in the world, was really the 1st of October, 1958. Two weeks later, there was a six-month strike. Some of you probably remember it because some of you probably worked or knew people living in uh, Creighton. But, so they never opened up the mirror shop again. So all these things are historical. 
But these were probably done by Mr. Van Dyne, and it was all sandblasting, and they were he and his wife were beautiful artists, they actually painting. But this type of work is very expensive now, and nobody really wants to pay for this type of thing. So historically, you have part of a, an industry, and the first plant that PPG ever made was in Creighton. So you, this whole valley has a lot to do with the mirrors. I have to thank two people here today. Uh, Mark here did the movement of the slides, and my friend back here, Tom, kept the, the time that I was going. And he also, for my wife, counted the number of OKs that I used because OK drives her nuts. OK. Thank you again. OK. <laughs> Very good. Uh, hey, one of our mirrors fell off there and broke. And we tried to get somebody to replace it. Now I find out why we couldn't get anybody. We're going to put a big plaque up there now, you know, because he gave up trying to find a. The mirror. But uh, a couple other things. This is Log Street right out here, yeah. going up and down the hill. If you're uh, interested in Roebling, we have two weeks from today, we have a program. Uh, Roebling left Saxonburg, you know, before he, you know, after he invented the wire rope, he, he made a uh, wire rope manufacturing plant in uh, New Jersey. Eventually they were. Uh, employing uh, I think 7,000 people all together in that plant. They're defunct now and there's a museum, a Roebling Museum out there. And it's in Roebling, New Jersey. And the head of the museum is coming here two weeks from today to talk about Roebling after leaving Saxonburg. And Saxonburg celebrating 185 years of, since it was established and 175 years since wire rope was invented. So this is a, another thing if people are interested in Roebling. And I promised Cindy I'd let her say a few words about Terenum. Thank you, Jim. Uh, this was an awesome program here today. I learned a lot and made a lot of notes about the canal. So I can pass these on to everybody next week. Terenum, you know, is celebrating 175 years this year as a third borough in Allegheny County. We've been having programs every month all year as Gina back there has been coming to the mall and skipping in, and sometimes Norm's gonna come, but sometimes Norm doesn't come. But I see Norm is here today, and he's helped me with a lot of information. He's um, a resident of the area, and has been here and had his office in Terenum for many years, and he's just a great, great guy. I enjoy talking to him and learning some of the history. And we're going to have a historic walking tour of Terenum. We're going to be going into some of the old buildings, which will be very interesting to you. And you'll be learning a lot about when Terenum started, how it got started, where they got their land, and when it was incorporated. So that's going to be a very interesting tour that I'm sure you'll all want to come to so you can learn more about this great town of Terenum, which is the third borough in Allegheny County. We're also going to be having a bus tour of the Landmark Buildings on September 16th. And we're going to have a movie here at the museum on October the 8th about the history of Terenum, which is an awesome movie that the museum has put together. 
and on October 21st, we're going to have a tour of the fire halls. We have three wards in Tarentum. Each ward has their own fire hall, and they all have a little museum in them. So there's going to be a lot to see and a lot to learn over the next few months. So if you have any questions or anything on this, uh, you can contact me. I handed some papers out. Now I hope there's a phone number on there. And um, if not, there are cards on the desk out there that you can pick up. So thank you all for coming today. Thank you for listening to everything I have to say. And hopefully we'll see you on the tours. Thank you. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. 